This is such a compelling account of one person's faith. Caleb, an octogenarian who had been zealous to obey God in the prime of his life at age 40, is, if anything, even more zealous now that he's 85. He hasn't gotten less committed over the years. If anything, he's gotten more. You can almost see him standing there with Joshua, making his case, just barely able to hold himself back as he insists that he be allowed to carry out his part in what God is doing in the world. You can feel his passion coming through the page. His zeal for God, his zeal for the mission of God, the passage just about preaches itself, right? And you all know where the application is going. Be like Caleb. Be stirred up like Caleb. Zealous like Caleb. Be on mission like Caleb. And there's something right about that. That's why they chose it for this morning. It should stir you. But it needs to stir you in the right way. Because if it doesn't, it's just going to throw you back on your own resources, on your own passion, your own zeal. It'll throw you back on the strength and the depth of your commitment to God instead of on the strength and the depth of his commitment to you. And if you let it be about you this morning, this passage will actually end up moving you away from what God is doing in the world. Because it won't move you to rely on him, to rely on his resources to accomplish your part in his mission. Instead, it will move you to rely on yourself, which is just going to cloud your understanding of the part that he has for you. Now, why do I say that? Because this account here in Joshua 14 is utterly unique. It's a really important moment in redemptive history, but it's just one of the steps that God took in the past in order to give his people a place to live, a land where they could live under his kingship, under his authority as his people, as he then did what? As he worked through them to bring his Messiah. And so Caleb, in this moment, with all of his passion, all of his commitment, is being used by God to fulfill a part of God's promise to his people. That verse 9, Caleb and his children would have this land as their inheritance. And God did that so that later there would be a people through whom would come Christ, who would then bring salvation to all the rest of the world. So what God did through Caleb was just one step in a very long line that points to Jesus, that shows us the greater Caleb, that shows us our passionate, committed leader, the only one who has ever wholly followed the Lord our God, the only one who was eager to drive out the enemies of sin and darkness from this world so that you and I would end up with an inheritance, so that we would live at peace with him, at rest from war, in the new creation. So this account is a very important step in the past. It's part of what God was doing in order to bring his kingdom to the place where it is now. And so we can't just look at it and say, okay, here's the point, be like Caleb. Can't say that because we're not in the same moment of redemptive history. The kingdom of God has moved on since then. And yet we also can't say, well, this account has no relevance to us now. It's simply historical. It's simply telling us how we got here. It does more than that. It tells us who Jesus is. It tells us what he's like. It tells us what he came to do. It tells us how he would live out the larger mission that God gave him. 
then as you read the New Testament, you realize that we are in him, in that phrase that says we're connected to him, that we take part in what he is doing, that we have a small piece in this larger mission of God in this world, and that we have to carry that mission out the way that Jesus carried his mission out with his empowering in us. And so if you will see this as, as, if you will see you and me as a little piece of the larger whole, then this passage has a lot to say to us. We'll look at three things this morning. We'll see that this passage tells us about the ongoing nature of the world in which we live. It tells us what the world is like. Second, it tells us how God's people go about living in this world. And third, it tells us what God provides in order for us to live in this world. So very briefly this morning, what this world is like, how we're to live in this world, and what God provides so that we can. First, you realize that this account is set within the context of war. God's people are at war, and that war is actually couched in fairly positive terms. Caleb declares, verse 11, he's still strong for war. He's longing to drive out the Anakim. And you think, why is this in Scripture? Is it glorifying war? You realize, no, it's here because God is trying to help you see the nature of reality. That daily you live your life in the middle of a war. Because you live in a world that fights against its maker. That's God's experience of his life. God created a perfect world, one that was in perfect harmony with him that shared harmony with every other part it was a world in which there was no flaw nothing missing he left nothing out filled it with beauty filled it with abundance filled it with everything that anyone could ever want to have a good life and humanity through our first parent the one who best represented all of us and represented what we had to offer humanity rejected him didn't want God, didn't want to listen to what he had to say about a good life. What did humanity want instead? Humanity wanted to use God's world and his stuff in ways that were different from God's ways, that were not perfect, that would end up with something less good than what God intended, something that would break the harmony that he created. In other words, humanity rejected God for no good reason, set ourselves against him, did not want his influence in our lives. We rejected his voice, what he had to say. We worked to remove his thoughts from his world so we could take his things and use them the way that we wanted to. We're the ones who plunged this world into war. We fought against him and against what he loves. We joined this world to the larger war that had been raging in the cosmos. You read scripture and realize that Satan started that war with his initial rebellion against God. <laughs> it was a rebellion that had just as little justification as our own rebellion. That war spread, spread to the fallen angels. It now engulfs the whole human race as Adam joined us to it. God did not choose war. He didn't start it. His creatures did. He didn't start it, but he didn't surrender once it was started. And that's because God loves his world, loves what he's made, loves his creation, loves it so much he's totally unwilling to see it marred and ruined 
he will not see it living forever under the tyranny of evil. Cares too much about people, cares too much about what he's made to say, oh, well, that was a nice idea, I guess, but I have to go along with something less good, less beautiful. I'll just leave you all to it. You do whatever you want. God cares too much to say that. And so even though he didn't start the war, didn't do anything to invite the war, he's decided to fight it and ultimately to end it in such a way that he removes every last vestige of sin and evil from his world so that one day everything will be in harmony with him again and will be in harmony with his purposes and with each other. Or in the words of verse 15, there's a day coming when there will be rest from war. Now, I need to take a brief aside here. Don't have a lot of time this morning, but this is really important. Some people in the modern age feel very comfortable critiquing what God does in his world. They read of the flood in Genesis where God wipes out everyone except for Noah and his family. Or they read how God commanded Israel to kill every person living in the land of Canaan. They read those accounts and they say, that's barbaric. That's bloodthirsty. That's, that's not a God I can respect, I, I, much less love. They judge God, but they do so without thinking about the big picture. They make an assumption that God is what? That he is killing people who don't deserve death. They assume what? That there is no war that's trying to get rid of God. They don't see that we all deserve to be driven out of his universe. They don't read a passage like this. I struggle to read a passage like this and see myself as the Anakim, those who should be driven out for not wanting to hear what God has had to say, driven out for every time that we resist him by disobeying him, driven out for every time that we have thought our ideas and our opinions made better sense than his do. People ignore that we start the war, that we continue the war. Instead, they read these passages and assume that God is the aggressor. And they judge him as being unjust for doing so. But you can only have that assessment if you have a selective reading of history. If you forget that he didn't start this. It would be a lot like forgetting that Russia started their current war and then blame the, blaming the Ukrainians for attacking Russian soldiers. It'd be like judging Ukraine, saying that what they're doing is unjust, that they have no right to do so. It's ludicrous when you remember the bigger picture, the longer history. If you want to see life as it is, and if you want to judge things accurately, you can't be selective in what you choose to see about God and what you ignore. You have to see that God is responding to a war that he did not start and that he's doing so in such a way to stop evil, to put an end to its agenda. Think about it this way. When ants or mice, insect ants, when ants or mice invade my house, there's war. They can all live outside. I'm fine with that. But when they insist on using my property for their own purposes, when they disturb the peace of the people who live in my house, there is war because I will not let their purposes rule over my family. 
won't let their purposes invade the life that we're trying to build together in our home. Now, obviously, there's an important difference. Ants and mice hold no grudge against me. They've simply misstepped. Human beings, however, do hold a grudge against God, one that's totally unreasonable. We resent him telling us how to live. That God is at all patient in this war that we started is nothing less than a miracle of divine grace, especially in light of how quick we are to judge him as being evil, to judge him for having the gall to take back what has only ever been his to start with. Read scripture and you realize God is not simply patient. He's incredibly patient in how he goes about taking it back. If he chose to retake everything back in an instant, to eradicate every trace of evil in a moment, none of us would survive. He'd have to eradicate us. And so God has chosen patience in order to restore what he's made. You get a hint of that patience or a reminder of that patience in this passage of Joshua. God has been waiting 400 years to judge the unrighteousness of the people living in Canaan. That's what he told Abraham centuries earlier, that the people living there had not yet sinned to the level that he was no, willing to put, no longer willing to put up with. God is patient in this war, but he's also determined absolutely committed to retaking his world. And so the reality for you and me is that we live in the middle of a massive cosmic battle, a battle that stretches back eons into the past, a battle that constantly touches every part of every person's life. In that sense, that's the world you were born into, in that sense, you've never known a minute of life that was not war-tinged. And daily, you are called to take a side, either to join God in retaking his world or to resist him, try to keep some of it from him. You don't have a choice. That's the world that you and I live in. And yet you realize that some people try to live as though there was no war taking place, that somehow it's avoidable. Like the people that Caleb refers to here in verse 8, the brothers who went up with him, not family brothers, but other members of Israel, the brothers who went up with him who made the heart of the people melt. Now, who are these brothers? We read back in the book of Numbers that 45 years earlier, Israel had stood on the edge of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give them, same land where they are now. And at that time in the past, Moses sent in 12 spies to take a look at the land. Caleb, Joshua, and then ten others, ten brothers. And the ten came back and reported that although the land was super rich and abundant, that the people living there, the Anakim, were too strong for them. That Israel could not defeat them. They shouldn't even try. Instead, these brothers counseled, Israel should give up any hope of staying there, should turn around and head back to Egypt. These ten brothers thought that they could skip the war, thought that they didn't have to be part of it, didn't have to be on one side or the other, thought they could opt out, go back to Egypt, and concentrate on their own lives. They didn't see reality the way that it is. And that assessment would have surprised them. They'd have said, no, <laughs> we see exactly the way it is. We're the realists. 
We see the power and the might of the Anakim. We see it correctly. But they didn't. Because they didn't see enough. They didn't see what Caleb and Joshua saw. In the book of Numbers, Caleb and Joshua argue that Israel should not be afraid. And they said, here's the reason. Because the Lord is with us. So these two also saw the Anakim. But they saw a larger context. They remembered the Lord. They remembered that he's with us. They remembered his relationship to Israel. They remembered that he had brought Israel out of Egypt, how that he had rescued them from Egypt's army, that he'd fed them in the wilderness, put up with their grumbling, given them to water to drink when there wasn't any, that he was with them and that he promised to bring them into the land. They saw God. They saw God's commitment to winning the war, They saw his commitment to not destroying them, but rescuing them in the process. Who were the realists? It's not the ten brothers. It's Caleb and Joshua. They're the ones who really did see things as they were. And seeing that correctly moved them to want to take part in the war, wanting to side with God with what he was doing. You have that same situation and that same calling. Yes, it's a different time in redemptive history, but it's a time when we're still in the middle of the war. The end goal, verse 15, is that the Lord will bring rest from war, but until then, what is God doing? He's at work saving people from evil. And he calls you and me to take part in that work, not to ignore it, not to opt out of it, But to look around at what's happening, to look in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, to look around and ask, God, what are you doing at this moment? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to destroy evil and bring about restoration. What are you doing right now? And how do I get involved? Where's my part? If you don't learn to ask that question, You're taking the road of the ten brothers. You're hoping to carve out a safe place for yourself so that you can invest in your own life while you are missing out on the heart of what God is doing in the world. That's point one, the nature of what this world is like, how you have to know that if you're going to live your life well. Point two, then, how do we go about navigating that reality? Several times we're told that Caleb wholly followed the Lord his God. And we learn that there are two aspects here to what it means to wholly follow the Lord. First, it means that you have to be guided through life by what God says. And second, it means that you are eager to be involved in what God is doing. We'll take them one at a time. Caleb's guided by what God said. You think about what he's doing here. He's coming to Joshua... And he's recounting to Joshua something that happened 45 years ago. That was when, verses 9 and 10, that God spoke through Moses and promised Caleb an inheritance. Here he is, 45 years later, and he remembers it, talks about it. What's that tell you? He's been reflecting on it. Reflecting on those words, thinking about what they mean. Letting those words guide his actions. 
letting them form what he asks for. Caleb has given himself to the word of God, given himself to being shaped by the word of God in such a way that now it not only impacts his life, his decisions, causes him to have certain things that he's going to talk with Joshua about, but it's going to set the course for his descendants as well. You will never enter into what God is doing if you don't invest yourself in knowing what he said. You can't. You have to be in Scripture, in what God spoke through Moses, through the prophets, through the psalmists, through the historians, the gospels, the letters. You have to give yourself to finding God in Scripture and to delighting in what you find there. It's a really crucial mark of God's people. They have a hunger to hear from him, a hunger to feed themselves. They're not satisfied with a quick meal here on Sunday morning or a Bible study in CG or youth group. God's people don't binge a couple times during the week and then starve themselves all the rest of the, the other days. Instead, they're in Scripture, reading, studying, talking with God, asking Him, please, show me something of yourself. And then what? Then reading until, until God does. Whether that's the first sentence or the first chapter, who cares how long? But they read until there's a, some sense that something comes out of the passage that, that is the voice of God speaking to them through his word, makes them stop. And then they pray, they talk, they, they say those things back to him. That becomes the focus of their conversation. Without this, you can't know who God is or what he's up to. And when that happens, you'll factor him out of his universe, just like people do who criticize him when they don't realize he didn't start the war. You have to have this if you're going to grow spiritually. Forty-five years was not too long for Caleb to meditate on one promise from God. You and I have to have that same commitment. It's part of what it means to wholly follow God. It's to be guided by what he says so that it shapes you. Second, wholly following God means that you're eager to be involved in what you see him doing. In Caleb's day, God had only revealed a tiny slice of his plans to his people, much less than what we understand about his kingdom now. And yet, with only that little slice, Caleb could not stand the thought of being left out. Forty-five years ago, he was all in to the point where he was in danger of being stoned by the larger people of Israel because he was urging them, no, let's go. Forty-five years later, at the age of 85, he's not ready to quit. He's not ready to retire. Not ready to sit back, let some of the young bucks take charge while he enjoys what he's earned. Instead, he's totally sold out. Sold out to join in whatever God is doing at this particular moment in redemptive history, even if that means it might put his life in danger again. Is that what's important to you? That you be where God is doing what he's doing? Are you willing to put yourself and what you could have on the line or like the ten brothers? Are you more concerned with sheltering and preserving what you have? Conserving, protecting what you have. You hear me pleading with you right now, right? 
to live your life for what's important. To not waste your life. To not join in the lifestyle of the ten brothers and end up with the same consequences. Remember what happened to them? They died in the wilderness. God's judgment fell on his people. He told them to go in and take the land. They said no. They wanted an easier life. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But that was not an option. God did not rescue his people from slavery so that they could return to slavery again. They were his people now. So they weren't going back. That door closed. But they rebelled against him. They refused to move forward in what he was doing. They weren't going back, but now they're not going forward either. Instead, they would live in the wilderness for the next 40 years until that entire faithless generation died out. They didn't choose God's side in the war, and he judged them. They were still his people, but they lost the chance to live their lives for anything meaningful which meant that they lived the rest of their lives just marking time, doing donuts out there in the desert. Their children had to wait for them to die so that they could then take part in what God was doing. Ten brothers and everyone who listened to them tried to live their lives to preserve their lives, tried to live as if there was no war, and all that meant was that they then did not do anything to advance the purposes of God, and they ended up losing their lives anyway. Very sobering contrast between the ten spies and Caleb and Joshua. It's a contrast that should make you ask, what am I living for? Am I living to preserve my life? We now have longer lifespans than earlier generations, Caleb accepted. But a longer life is only better if you're going to do something worthwhile with it. So ask yourself, are you? Do people know more about God because you've been in the room? Do your unbelieving friends, do your family know more about the Lord because you were in the room? Are you intentional in the conversations you have? Are you eager to see God's purposes advanced in the lives of his people and in the lives of those who are not yet his people? Or are you more committed to preserving your life, to not being ridiculed, to not being shouted down for what you believe? Are you committed to hanging out with God's people, but not committed to growing in your faith with God's people, not committed to seeing anyone else grow in theirs? Do you seek God for opportunities to share what you've seen of him in Scripture? Or are you more interested in going under the radar at work, to fitting into your neighborhood, to enrolling the kids in a bazillion activities, to being a comfortable, card-carrying member of the Philadelphia suburbs? See, that's the danger of our unique social location. It's to be endlessly distracted by our careers and activities without realizing that all we're doing is going in circles in the wilderness. Just trying to preserve our lives, pretending there is no war going on, 
by pretending that people don't really need Jesus to save them from evil, and that they really don't need help to see him. Doing circles in the wilderness while the next generation waits for us to get out of the way so that they can get on with the work of the kingdom. I am so glad that we can send out our friends, the W family. But hear this. That is not something to celebrate unless them going overseas moves us to go next door. Unless their zeal to take the hill country arouses similar zeal in us. We don't have to go overseas. But we do have to think carefully about what our children need to see and hear from us that points them to Christ. What our friends, our spouses, neighbors, colleagues need to see. God has given each one of us a mission field, a hill country, where evil is currently making war on him. And he's called you and me to be engaged, saved us from evil, so now we take part in fighting evil. Are you eager for that? Zealous? It's part of what it means to wholly follow him. Which brings us then to point three. Quickly. The resources that God provides for us to live that way in this war-torn world. Notice first here that God does not say how he's going to provide. Caleb remembers the promise he was given, verse 9, that surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. He's promised that it shall be, but he is not told how that promise is actually going to come about. So 85-year-old Caleb knows his strength is the same as his 40-year-old self. But he didn't know that that was going to be true when he was 40. What does that mean he had to do day after day? What's the life of faith look like? He had to take God at his word that God would make that happen, that he would inherit somehow. Had to keep cycling back to that promise, remind himself of that promise, keep seeking God for the faith to believe that promise. And then he had to live out the day that was in front of him to see how God would provide for that promise. Caleb takes that lesson to heart. Verse 12, he says to Joshua, Give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. I want what's mine. And then he says at the end, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, the Anakim out, just as the Lord said. In English, it may be, to our ears, sounds a little bit like doubt. Commentaries point out, however, that that's not how that phrase is heard. It's a phrase that doesn't necessarily express doubt as much as it usually signifies hope. And so what you're really reading here sounds more like Caleb saying, the Lord will drive out the Anakim. That's part of his plan. I believe him. Perhaps it'll be by my hand. In other words, Caleb is saying, I'm not sure how God's going to pull this off. 
But he promised, therefore he will. And I'd like to be involved if that's possible. God reveals the what in his promises, as in what will happen. Does not reveal the how. You and I learn the how as we take seriously the what. And so the call to you and me now is to know and believe the promises that Christ has given us. Not to figure out in advance how they're going to come about, but to know them, to believe them, to order our lives by them. And so the call is to believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, regardless of how bad things get here on earth. To believe that you and I will be his witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth regardless of how fearful we feel. To believe that you don't need to worry about the present moment because you know that he'll never leave you or forsake you. To know that you don't need to worry about the future because he's gone to prepare a place for you, an inheritance that you can't begin to imagine. And so when you look around, you see the Anakim in your own lives, the enemies that resist God and his people. When you see that they are just as big now as they've ever been, when the pressures of the world and society make clear and clearer that they are set against God, remember the promises. Remember that the future is already secured. Remember that evil has done its worst to Jesus. It killed him. And remember that he's now alive in a transformed body, an immortal body, one that will not get sick, won't wear out, won't die. What is that? That's the future. That's the new creation bursting into the present moment. And once that new creation breaks into this world, there's nothing that can hold it back until it finally fully comes. That gives you confidence that there's a day coming when the cosmic war is ended, when the new creation will be fully here, the new creation that you're part of, a day when the universe will have rest from war, will have rest from the power and the presence of both sin and evil. And if you trust Jesus, if you trust that what he did in his death was enough to pay for every time you fought against God by disobeying him, that it was enough to allow God to judge your evil, to remove it from you without destroying you, if you believe that, that means that right now you're no longer at war with God. And it means that he promises one day that you'll live in a world that only knows peace. Why would you risk siding with God in this cosmic war now? Because you have absolutely nothing to lose. Your future is guaranteed, not because you have full, wholly followed the Lord, but because Jesus did. He lived the life you should have lived in order to give you the rewards that you could never earn for yourself. That means there's nothing you can lose in this life. You can't lose family, friends, reputation. You can't lose career, possessions, nothing that can begin to compare with the life that Jesus won for you. The peace that you can have with God right now that he guarantees you'll experience in every other relationship you have for all eternity. Lord Jesus, Stir us, not to be like Caleb, but to recognize that not only were you like him, you were far better than he. 
and that you've won for us what we could never get for ourselves and that we can now follow you stumbling along but knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're secure, knowing that there is no war between you and us anymore because you took care of that. Lord, if you would fill us with a small sense of that, that would move us into the lives of the people around us because we just couldn't keep quiet about that. Lord, do that. Let us see your love stir us up, and then, Lord God, send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.